You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. After receiving my acceptance letter, it was a few short months before I went off to begin my college career. But the summer between high school and college, uh, there was an orientation that I was required to go to. I had to attend orientation, and orientation is designed to clear up misunderstandings that you might have by giving you the most important information that you need for your journey. You learn the lay of the campus. You learn how to register for classes. You learn how to to pay the college. They make sure you know about that. (laughs) And one of the most important pieces of information that we got at orientation concerned how we were to get our ID card. Our ID card. The ID card at school was everything. The ID card was the way that you got access to the classroom buildings, which was your whole purpose for being there in the first place. The ID card was how you got access to the cafeteria so you could get nourished. The ID card was how you got access to your dorm room so you could go home and rest. And thankfully, I had paid just enough attention at orientation that I was able to successfully get my ID card and begin my college journey on the right foot academically. But when we got to campus, I discovered that I had a friend who was having a very different experience because he didn't pay close attention at orientation. He missed out on some key information and as a result, he lost his ID. So the first week, he couldn't get into any of his class buildings, which was his whole purpose for being there. He couldn't get access to the cafeteria, so he couldn't get fed. And he couldn't get access to his dorm room, so he couldn't even get rest. All of this was the result of failing to pay attention to orientation. Now, if you can understand this, then you can understand something of the nature of God's word. Rather than giving us a rule book or something like Aesop's fables or or bare moral stories, what the Lord gives us in Scripture is he gives us a sort of orientation, as it were, in story form to clear up our misunderstandings by giving us the most important information that we need for our journey. Now, Philosophers and great thinkers of old, from Socrates to Sigmund Freud, have all been uniform in this one message. You need to know who you are. You need to know who you are. And it may be the case that you have paid enough attention to orientation, that you have a solid sense of your own identity. You have a solid sense of who you are. But many others, are having a very different experience of life. Maybe that describes you today. Many people in our culture are struggling to access their purpose because they 
have not paid attention to orientation and they have lost their ID card. Many are hungry for meaning and significance and yet find themselves empty because they have lost their ID card. Many people can simply find no rest from their need to perform and impress people because they have lost their ID card. All because they, they have paid no attention to orientation. Psalm 8, y'all, is a wonderful passage of scripture that leads us to orient our life in this world. It asks one of the big questions of life. What is man? And I, I want you to hear that in the language of what is humanity, right. men and women. What is man is a whole nother sermon. Okay? <laughs> a whole nother sermon. The big question, what is humanity? Where do we get this information? How do we know? Where do we get solid roots to answer this question? Psalm 8 gives us the central truths that human beings must embrace to enjoy the flourishing for which they were created. So we're going to approach this passage with three points. We're going to look at orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Those are our three points. Orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. So let's look at our first point. Orientation. Psalm 8 orients us to this bigger question concerning humanity. What Psalm 8 is, is it's an artistic reflection upon the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. And it seems as if it's prompted by David's engagement with creation. All through the history of the church, theologians have talked about the two books of God's revelation, scripture and creation. And creation, that book of revelation, is meant to lead you back to God's revelation in scripture. But David is giving us this artistic reflection and he expresses praise to the Lord as creator and he celebrates the glory of human beings, God's image bearers, as the crown of God's creative work. And if you want to read scripture more profitably, here's a paradigm that you need to take with you. If you want to understand scripture, you have to understand what was happening in context of the passage relative to the culture of the time so that you can then cross the horizon to today to understand how we are taught to engage with our culture right now. So what, what, how did Psalm 8 hit in its culture at that time? It hit in a very powerful way because in the culture of the time, the ancient Near East, there were various stories about creation and various accounts of where human beings came from and what human beings were. And if you remember how Israel spent a lot of time in Egypt, right? Just as an example, in Egypt, just like all the other ancient Near Eastern cultures, the belief of the time was that the king was the image of their deity. All the common people, they weren't the image of the deity. Only the king of that place was the image of the deity. And the king was understood to represent the will of that deity in the way that they governed, in the way that they lived. They were supposed to be a representation for the common folk of the God they represented. Now, check it out. Psalm 8 lands in an ancient Near Eastern culture, and it says, deep value is
is not just residing in kings and important people. The image of God is democratized. Every single solitary human being reflects the image, the dignity, and the glory of the God who created them. Every single one. We get a more glorious account of human beings in Psalm 8 than anything that existed at the time. And in our second point, I'm going to suggest to you that it's still more glorious than anything offered by the culture in this time. What we get in Psalm 8 is this powerful account of equal dignity for every human being and transcendent purpose for every human being. Every single human being on earth receives this. It jumps off the page. Equal dignity, transcendent purpose. Here's where you need to see that. Verses 3 through 5, you see equal dignity. It says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Notice the source of human dignity. An attentive, caregiving creator who crowns each of his royal image bearers with glory and honor. Hear that this morning. Receive it. I don't know what kind of messages are living rent-free in your head about who you are. Maybe failures in your life lead you to hear a voice in your head that beat you up all the time. Maybe you have heard voices from the past parents, mentors, or people who were important to you in the past who wounded you with words and now you always live with a sense of insecurity and insignificance. Psalm 8 is meant to ride over all of those other voices. You are meant to hear God say to you, you are valuable to me. You know, your immeasurable glory, you bear immeasurable honor and glory because you were fearfully and wonderfully made by the Lord, your creator. Before it was popular in the culture for people to greet one another. What's up, king? What's up, queen? Crowned with glory and honor. Do you see the image? It's like the first thing that Adam saw when he opened his eyes was God breathing into him the breath of life. And it's almost as if the Lord looked at Adam and winked and said, what's up, King? (laughs) That's the kind of dignity and value that you have. In this text, what we see is this, this royal dignity that humanity was created for a transcendent purpose as well, which you see in verses six through eight. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Here's the deal. If you look out at night and you look up in the sky, you can see the moon oftentimes shining brightly. Here's the thing, though. The moon has no light of its own. The moon simply reflects the light of the sun. And the amount of light
based upon how much of the world gets in between the sun and the moon. Mm. Okay. The moon shines the light of the sun into the darkness. Now, what you see in this text is that God gives his royal image bearers the responsibility to cultivate the earth, to, to keep it, to bring it to a greater state of flourishing, to be culture makers, to take care of this place, to shine his light in the world as his royal image bearers so that when people look at human beings, they were meant to see the rule of God expressed, the glory of God shining, the dignity of God upheld. That's what people, the will of God completely manifest. That's what the image was created to be. That's what you were created to be. We were created to reflect the sun's light into the darkness. Our purpose is transcendent because it comes from a transcendent God who knows why he made us, and that was for stewardship of the rest of creation, bringing it to fullness through all different kinds of callings, not just preachers in robes, but people who work in medicine and science and business and law, school teachers, street sweepers, politicians. All of these are various opportunities to work out this transcendent calling. It all matters. It's all important. Do you feel like you're not important because of the kind of work you do? Lose that idea. What you do in some way reflects the light of the sun into the world. Mm -hmm. I have often said, when I see people doing janitorial work, I can't think of many more things that are more like God than cleaning up other people's messes. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Dignity, transcendent purpose. These callings are valuable, not because we say they are, but because they are various ways of participating in God's renewal of the whole world. What a transcendent purpose. God left us in charge of this place. <laughs> Think about how dignified that is. And as we do good work in these various vocations, it anticipates the world to come and it whets our appetite for glory. We get little snapshots, little snippets, little movie trailers of the life to come. This is how Christians ground identity for themselves, and this is how Christians establish the way they view and treat other people. You don't meet any mere mortals, C.S. Lewis said. Everyone you come into contact with is a glorious image bearer of the Most High God. Yes, sir. And even though the image of God has been defaced, it has not been erased. That's right. And we must recognize that dignity in other people. That should be one of the most shocking differences about dealing with church folk. Is you should feel so dignified and honored when you come into contact with her. That should be our rep. This is how we view and treat people regardless of how much money they have, what kind of work they do, how they dress, how they vote, or any other superficial ways of ascribing value to them. This orientation is the reason why Christians see a core dignity to fellow human beings regardless of the choices that they have made or the ways that they behave. 
You know you can recognize someone's dignity without needing to agree with every choice they make. Their bad choices do not take away the fact that they are image bearers. And their behavior never excuses you from, from a failure to recognize it in another person. No matter how bad they are, you never have permission to mistreat the image of God. I've used this image before, but since my folks are in here, I want to use this illustration. If I had a picture of my mom right here and I spit on it, would you just conclude that I don't like photographs or that I had a problem with my mom? When you fool with God's image, it's not about the image bearer exclusively. It's about the God whose image they bear. You have a problem with God if you have a problem with fellow image bearers. Take that into consideration. But we face a barrage of alternative approaches to identity that lead us to disorientation, don't we? That brings us to our second point, disorientation. We get conflicting messages from our culture. And one of my responsibilities as your pastor is to name those things so that you don't get duped by them. And also, if you're a neighbor in here trying to work through things, I'm trying to faithfully represent Christian thinking, Christian spirituality, and how it is distinct from what you are offered in the world. And I'm gonna be straight up with you. I wanna invite you in. Because I believe nothing can settle the identity thing like the Christian faith. The world is sending you conflicting messages. Check it out. On the one hand, we're told that this world is just random. It just kind of came out of nowhere. It's meaningless and it's purposeless. So you don't really have any way of saying that human beings have purpose. That's Richard Dawkins' atheism, okay? But on the other hand, the culture tells you that you exist in the center of your universe and that the whole world revolves around you. Which is it? Are you marked by unimaginable dignity and purpose and value and worth? Does the world revolve around you or is it all pointless and meaningless? Which is it? Modern culture? Secular culture cannot arrive at a coherent and consistent ground for human dignity and moral obligation toward fellow image bearers. It can't. Secular humanism cannot give you the grounds for human dignity and moral frameworks that are consistent and coherent. Many of our neighbors operate by what philosopher Charles Taylor calls the ethics of inarticulacy, which is to say, you look at Facebook, Twitter, and all the other ones that have popped off this past week, and you get on there, you hear people speaking in ethical terms. You should do this. You shouldn't be racist. You should treat people with dignity. You should be just. And if you say to any of these secular people, why should I? Because that's why inarticulacy. They can't actually ground why you ought to do what you're supposed to do in their vision. I'm not jonesing on their sensibilities. The sensibilities are good. They simply have no way of grounding them. No way of setting up a framework where they can actually say to another person, you should do this or you shouldn't do that. There's no way to make that more than just your personal opinion on the secular framework. You see, it's incoherent. It it can't 
Why do human beings have dignity according to the secular framework? Give me one good reason. Give me one good way to ground it. They aren't there. The Christian faith grounds it in the fact that we are royal image bearers of God. That's right. That's different. If this world is all random, if it was not created by a transcendent personal God who has given a moral framework, then your moral norms can't be anything more than your opinion, and you really don't have a right to enforce them on anybody else. See, you don't want to live in a world like that, but that's what the worldview equates to. Uh Even though modern secular people have done away with God, they still cannot escape the need to figure out the identity questions, and they still can't help but grope for meaning and purpose and significance and dignity. It's hardwired into us. And Christians would say that's because you were made in God's image. You were made to long for it. It's built in. But the secular world offers meager resources for addressing these deep human desires. Henry Nowen talks about the five lives of identity. We've talked about these before. I just want to hit them real briefly. And I want to get into more specific ways that I think our culture tries to ground identity for us. Henry Nowen talked about the five lives of identity. One, I am what I have. Two, I am what I do. Three, I am what other people say or think of me. Four, I'm nothing more than my worst moment. Five, I'm nothing less than my best moment. All of those are lies upon which people build their identities, okay? But our culture, I think there's some other ways this is expressed. I want to be a little bit more explicit and dig down into this. There's a series of them that are given to us in culture, if you listen carefully. The first one. I am what I acquire and accomplish. How many times have you run into people that they're making their decisions purely based on how much money they can make? This is a DC thing for sure, right? Underneath this is a philosophy of life that says, for me to be happy, for me, I need to make enough and have all the things that I like, then I will have a solid sense of self. And this is an artificial view of the self. And it's incredibly prone to destruction. There is no more fragile foundation than I am what I acquire and accomplish. Because here's the thing. If you can't get it, then you can't get you. And if you get it and lose it, then you've lost you. If you build your identity on what you get and what you have. Not to mention the fact that this way of grounding identity completely ignores the majority of the world that lives on the margins. Who are they if they don't have? Are you really ready to count out the rest of the world as really having no solid sense of self because they can't acquire and accumulate like we can in the West? Are you prepared to do that? I am what I acquire. Next, I am what I feel. Others suggest that if you really want to find yourself, you got to get in touch with your feelings. We're not talking about your confused feelings, right? It's this idea that beneath your confused feelings, somewhere deep down in you is your true self. And if you can tap into your deepest feelings, you'll figure out who you are. But here's the challenge to that thinking. What evidence do you have that deep down within you, in your core, there is in fact an alignment with what is true and good? How do you know that when you dig down deep into the core of yourself and you find your core longings that they're actually going to align with what is good and true. How can you have any confidence of that? And given how quickly feelings can shift and change, how can 
my identity grounded in what I feel provide any stability or consistency? Finding yourself locating your identity on this view is like trying to hit the proverbial moving target. As your emotions go, you're always trying to find yourself. And this is why therapy is good, but not enough. I had a pastor friend who said therapy is like four-wheel drive. It can take you further, and you can also get way more lost. Yes, sir. There may be people in here right now that because you attend therapy without a transcendent origin, a transcendent marker, a transcendent anchor or pillar, therapy is actually making you get more lost. This is the I am what I feel. What I'm saying is that the priestly powers of therapy are very limited, okay? Very limited. The Bible says that in essence, we are conflicted beings. We are flesh and spirit. All right. You're created to be one with God, but because you're not, you are deeply conflicted. You're disconnected from your real source. You can't find true north on your compass, so you're lost on the journey. This disorientation makes bad things look good and good things look bad to you, which is to say that you often find yourself living a life that's antagonistic to the God who created you in love. And the language of scripture used to describe this state of being, this way of life is called sin, okay? We're given something better in scripture than I am what I feel. Next, I am what my genes say I am. That's another way that people try to ground identity. You look at how you're mapped, you, you look at your predispositions, this is particularly the case in sexuality conversations, right? And then you just follow your instincts. But here's the deal, very few people wanna follow the consequences of this thinking. The people who originated this way of thinking did so in the 1930s and um, they were the Nazis. That's where this thinking originated. This philosophy says inheritability equals inevitability. I can't be otherwise than what my genes dictate. If my genes say I need to be this way, then I'll experience a violent rupture of myself unless I obey my genes. It's like that Sprite commercial, obey your thirst. It presupposes that there's no God and it's a very deterministic view of the world. Like you have no option, your choices don't matter. You are just fixed as you are. But what cannot be proven is that your genes are actually good. Christians have a more critical, realistic view of the world. We believe that the world is fallen and that your genes can tell you to do things that you shouldn't do. And so can your environment. It's nature and nurture that can throw you the wrong signals. And that's how bad it is for creation to be broken in relationship to God. Besides, how do you determine whether it's good or bad to resist your genes or to embrace them? You see all of the assumptions that are made in these worldviews? There's so much begging of the question. You know, in logic, to beg the question is to assume the answer that you should be proven. The modern world always foists these ways of thinking on us and it says, oh, it's self-evident. To who? (laughs) Not me. And I hope not to you because they have not made their case. And that's why I would encourage you to re-examine these things. I know of nobody prepared 
to embrace this. Here's why. What if you are disposed genetically to violent behavior, which is actually much more research for than there is for sexual predisposition? <laughs> what if you're predisposed to violent behavior? Are you willing to say that it will cause a rupture in myself if I resist my violent behavior? Of course you're not. Nobody wants to live in a world like that. That's why we got law enforcement. You really want our neighbors out here doing whatever is instinctual to them? They don't want you doing it. I am what my genes say I am. Finally, I am whatever I say I am. I am whatever I say I am. Forget trying to discover the me within. Just create yourself. Throw off the patriarchies and the authorities that are trying to define you. The individual is what matters. Therefore, create your own identity. Live your life. You're free. Here's the problem. If there's no creator who gives identity and purpose and meaning and truth and right and wrong, if you lack this, then the self that you're trying to create exists in a purposeless world. <laughs> a random universe. You're building a house that you cannot live in because everything within you screams for meaning and purpose. If you say I am what I say I am and I'm free to create myself, you have absolutely no basis or right to challenge the person who says I like to oppress people. That's how I like to think of myself. You have no ground to tell them they can't oppress other people because they are who they say they are. And if you want that right for yourself, then you have to leave it open for everyone. Is that the kind of world you want to live in? Does that world have any social possibility in the end? Or does it descend into anarchy and estrangement like what we see playing out right now? Where do you get the standard or the great principle that says if we all create ourselves and follow our own authorities, we can all get along? Where in the world do you get that principle from? Can you help me? I sure enough can't find a solid source for that way of thinking. And I think we already can see how it plays out in our culture. You can choose one of these approaches to grounding identity and in a sense you'll be free-ish. But, free for what? Free for what? A free what? If there is no creator, no transcendent purpose, no royal dignity in relationship to God, all you can be is a free, random life form in a cold and meaningless universe, desperately trying to squeeze significance out of a world that has none to give. That's right. That is a sad picture. And that's the best that secular modernism has to offer. If the universe is purposeless and has no author, then good and evil are relative. There's no objectivity. And if this is true, then all talk of goodness, beauty, and truth are deceptive. I'm not saying that secular people don't want these things. I'm saying their framework can't give them the resources for living into it. If you look at the universe and see it as purposeless, what do you really have in the end? Even if you believe in some kind of higher power who accounts for creation, if that higher power is not personal, is not good, is not love itself, what do you really have? It's 
no wonder that identity is elusive, confusing, and the source of so much conflict in our society. There's a lot going on here. These ways of trying to find yourself, when these ways of life are commended to you, hear me when I say this. When people commend these secular ways of grounding identity to you, it's like yelling to a drowning person, swim, swim. You're inviting them to rely back on their own resources that got them in that situation to begin with. It's, it's self-defeating. It cannot deal with the feelings that people face. Giving therapeutic techniques to people struggling with feelings of insignificance and worthlessness is like someone yelling, swim to a drowning person. Right. There's no way to ground it. There's no way to assure them it's going to be okay. Right. On what grounds can you say it's going to be okay? Right. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. It's going to be okay. I'm sure many a therapist has said that. On what ground? As a Christian, I can say it's going to be okay. Jesus rose from the dead. Right. I know it's going to be all right. He got up. That's my assurance. That's my confidence. Right. And that's how I can tell you it's going to be all right. Where are the other Where are the other sources? How do we account for the glory and the grotesque in humanity? How do human beings settle the identity questions that shape life? Where do we get purpose, meaning, and significance? This brings us to reorientation, our final point. The Christian faith is able to account for beauty and brokenness in humanity. The Christian faith is honest about what it is that we experience with people. I, I love those channels on social media that says, like, humans are amazing. You know, there's some really amazing things. You see royal image bearing in all kinds of ways, from athletic feats to feats of brilliance. The Christian faith accounts for that. We reflect the royal dignity of God. But it also accounts for all of the heinous sin and evil and brokenness and wickedness and violence and corruption and injustice that we find in the world. Why is it like that? Christianity says because we've lost our way in departing from God. So we have no moral compass. We have, we have no sense of the right. We fail to live into it. In texts like Psalm 8, the Christian faith accounts for human dignity, value, and purpose. But the Christian faith is also able to adequately account for human evil, corruption, and sin. It can account for both. Solzhenitsyn said this once. He said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart, and through all human hearts. Jewish Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl said this, man is that being who invented the gas chambers of Auschwitz. However, he is also that being who entered those chambers upright with the Lord's prayer or the Shema Yisrael on his lips. We're a convoluted mix. We're a mess. There's so much good to affirm in humanity. We want to do that. What do you do with the mess inside? Yeah. What do you do with the brokenness? Where do you go with your failures and your faults and your sins and your insufficiencies and your shame and your fears? Where do you go? What do you do with it? If we are in fact created by God who is personal, a relational intimate God, and the entire nature of our walking away from him was a relational rift. It wasn't just a breaking of God's law. It was a breaking of 
What is the moral culpability of that? We need to wrestle with these things. We can't go on sweeping it under the carpet forever. In an utterly unique way, not only does the Christian faith account for the, the, the dignity and the value and the purpose of humanity, not only does it account for the sin and the brokenness and the evil in humanity, but the Christian faith is also able to give you an account of hope in the face of moral failure and sin. That is the good news that we need. And how does scripture give it to us? Ultimately, listen to me, the good news of Psalm 8 is that this song is most truly sung on the lips of Jesus. God showed his mindfulness of human beings, his care for humanity by making the Son of God for a little while lower than the heavenly beings so that he could crown us with glory and honor. This is the firm foundation for identity and it's found in Jesus. In Hebrews 2, the writer of Hebrews lets us know that we learn true dignity, true glory, and the true honor of humanity through its fulfillment in Jesus, the God-man. Psalm 8, check it out. Psalm 8 reflects upon the first creation and the, the formation of Adam. But it doesn't stop by going back. It goes back so that it can go forward to the new creation and the last Adam, the second Adam who undoes all of the evil that Adam brought into this world in the first place. He is the true image of God, Colossians 1 says. When you look at him, you see divinity going strolling. And when he lived in this world, fully God, fully man, one person, two natures, Niceno-Chalcedonian orthodoxy, historic Christian thinking about Jesus, fully God, fully man. When he was in this world, essentially what he said to you and me is, let me show you how to do humanity. Let me show you how a royal image bearer reflects the glory of the king. Let me show you how a royal image bearer cares for the creation and loves people and repairs the brokenness and brings healing. This is what image bearers were created to be. We see it all in Jesus. But not only does he model that life, he's not just our example, he's also our savior. Because as B.B. Warfield once said, if he only was your example, he would show you what you ought to be but could never become. But because he's not only our example but also our redeemer, he doesn't just show you what you should be, he shows you what you shall be by faith. That is good news. Jesus showed us how image bearers were always meant to live. His life said, this is how you reflect the glory of God. But then he turned around, took that perfect life of image bearing, and he sacrificed it on the altar to atone for our failure to shed the light of God in the world, to walk in his ways, to care for his creation, to rise up into our royal purpose. That's what Jesus did. Let me ask you a question. How valuable must you be if God would pay such a cost to redeem you? How valuable must you be to him? And how important 
important must your purpose be? If God went to such great lengths to restore you to that purpose, y'all, don't you see? Nothing affirms your dignity and gives you hope in the face of your brokenness like the good news of the grace of God All right, Jesus Christ. All right. Nothing like it. You don't have to guess if you can ground your identity. You don't have to break a sweat to ground your identity. You don't have to accomplish a lot of things. You don't have to make it up as you go along. You don't have to rely upon what other people say about you. All you have to do is receive what God says about you. That's the core. Everything else yes, sir. falls into place for them. At the most fundamental level, Christians have learned who we are at the bottom of it all. Who are you? What is man? We are the beloved children of God who bear his image and reflect his glory by embracing his purpose for our lives. That's who you are, Christian. That's who you are. You are the beloved child of God who bears his image and reflects his glory by embracing your purpose from God. The bad news, y'all, here's the bad news. Neither your accomplishments, your feelings, your genes, nor your own declarations can ground your identity. You will never feel it in your soul by just telling yourself you're great. It's never the same. But when someone else comes along and says, hey, you were great, it hits different, doesn't it? You can't justify yourself. You can't affirm yourself from the inside. It can only come from the outside. Real solid rooting and grounding can only come from a declaration outside of you. The reformers used to say it's extra nos outside of us. Salvation isn't found in here. It's found here. This table is all about that gospel, that good news. Your accomplishments, feelings, genes, and declarations can't give you unshakable dignity, glory, and honor. They can't. Neither can they relieve you of your failure, sins, and brokenness. That's the bad news. You know what, though? The good news is that you don't need them to. Faith alone in Christ alone restores the dignity and purpose of God's image. Psalm 8 says, listen, Psalm 8 says to you, you're better than this. You were made for glory. You were made for glory, for intimate connection with the God who made you in love. You were made for transcendent purpose. You remember that thing that C.S. Lewis said once? He said, many people settle in this life for trifles. They're often found making mud pies in the slum because they don't know what a holiday at the beach is like. That's what it's like fooling around trying to craft a life of meaning, purpose, and fulfillment apart from God. It's a fool's errand. But you don't have to run that fool's errand. God says, come home. Come home. No strings. Come by faith. Live by faith. Rise by faith. Come home by faith. Even small faith finds a great savior. You know what one old school cat once said? He said, it doesn't matter if you have that treasure in a paper bag or a leather satchel. Both still contain the same treasure. Your faith may feel very fragile or it may feel strong. But when that faith is in Jesus, you still have the same treasure. That's right. Okay? That's right. 
You were made for glory. Receive and rest upon the accomplishments of Jesus, not your own accomplishments. Don't bring the merits of your life to God for acceptance, but the merits of Christ's life. It's not your trying, but his dying that confirms your worth. It's not your striving for perfection, but living in light of the resurrection that raises you up to your transcendent purpose. Live up into it today by faith. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.